yeah, I'm um, a partner in a law firm called Binkroft Sherwood, and I specialise in um, employment law, uh, so acting for both employers and employees. Um, and really, a special interest of mine is uh, flexible working and, and well-being in the workplace. Brilliant. Thanks, Louise. Um, so everyone can get to know you a little bit more on the on, on the personal side. Um, what makes you happy? Well, it's it's spending time with my family, um, with my two year old. Well, most of the time, apart from when she's having a, a tantrum. But um, <laughs> but that's been a really positive aspect for me um, from working from home, actually, um, during lockdown is that I've been able to spend more time with my um, daughter so having lunch with her and that's been that's been absolutely brilliant um so yeah so just enjoying things like taking her to football and the play park um yeah just yeah as I said spending lots of time with my family oh, and I, I think we've got to give it I, I read something the other day that you can't get equality um in, in the workplace until you get uh, quality at home and I think we should do a, a shout out to Drew shouldn't we because he's an incredibly amazing person when it comes to sharing everything isn't he so I think should we have a little shout out for Drew <laughs> that would be brilliant so that's my husband yep good shout out to Drew because I couldn't do what I do without his support so thank you Drew um Louise I'm going to read something out but um not in an American accent but you may <laughs> recognize it from America but um I was just doing some research the other day I just want to read this out which is yeah we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed, endowed by their creator and certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organising its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, I think that's all pretty good there. I think they've forgotten women in, in that, but let's forgive them on that. <laughs> um, so this is the Declaration of Independence. Um, question for you, Louise. Is the pursuit of happiness a legal right to American citizens? So, well, the yeah, what you've quoted from, as you said, is the... Um... Declaration of Independence, and and that actually represents a moral standard um, to which the United States should strive. So it doesn't actually have any um, legal standing um, in the United States. It doesn't confer legal rights um, on American citizens. But as I said, there is this kind of moral standard here, which the Declaration is setting out that the state shouldn't put barriers in the way of the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Um, and the drafting was actually based on um, the concept of the pursuit of happiness from the philosopher John Locke, who was looking at a um, specific meaning of happiness and so not happiness in a kind of transitory um, way or looking at immediate pleasure, but actually looking at long term active happiness. So a life well lived. Yeah. Um, so that's what really the Declaration is all about, is about you know, making sure that there aren't barriers in the way so that people can um, live um, in the best way, make the best decisions. Uh, so, for instance, you know, people have the choice of who they marry, for instance. Um, so really, that's that's kind of the, as I said, it's not a legal principle, but it is a moral standard. Thanks, Louise. Um, um, we're going to we're going to go to um, 
I think I'm going to get my history right here from the people who who sent the Statue of Liberty to the Americans or built it and sent it. Um, what do you think of the, the recent legal case in France where an employee successfully sued their employee over boredom? Um, what do you think about that case? I think it's a really um, interesting case. Um, I, I think just help a bit of background. So the, the employee... Um, worked for a perfume company and they said over four years that they weren't given any work to do or if they were it was just menial tasks so one day could just involve um, them having to buy a few bits of paper that was it and um, the employee suffered from bore out which is a term actually I hadn't heard of before um, it's the opposite of burnout um, and it, I've never, uh, I've bore never out. heard that. I've never heard that before. Bore out. No, I hadn't. And so it's an illness which um, results from an absence of meaningful, challenging tasks. Um, and so the employee suffered from this, became really unwell, and then was off for some time. And their employer um, dismissed them for prolonged absence. <clears throat> and the employee was, um, as you said, successful in the case um, because the French courts found that. Um, there was this infliction of boredom um, and that amounted to a kind of form of harassment by the employer. Mm. So the employer was liable. So I think it is a really interesting case, but I think what's also interesting is that I don't think it's going to have ramifications for um, the UK um, probably because in the UK, the general principle is that employers provided that they're paying their employees don't have to provide work um, so you don't have to provide a kind of certain level of work or a certain you know type of work as long as you're paying your employees. Um, there are a few exceptions to that. So, for instance, if you've got to you know work to keep up your public profile, so you're a theatre performer, um, or you need to um, you know keep your skill set going, yeah. so you're a doctor, for instance. But as I said, because of this general principle that there isn't a requirement for employers to provide work, I think it will have limited um, impact in the UK but employers would still have to be mindful of um, disability discrimination claims and risks around that. Right and when when we were discussing this you uh, you started talking to me about in the UK implied duty uh, Im sorry implied duty of mutual trust and confidence. Um, yeah. Can you ex can you explain in the UK what what that is? Yeah so this is a um, duty which is implied I'm into all contracts in the UK. Um, and it means that an employer can't conduct itself in a manner which is likely to destroy or seriously damage the relationship of trust and confidence between um, the employer and the employee. Louise, and it's really. Bit? Sorry, Louise, can you say that bit again? I think the line broke. Um, and it was yeah, sure. Point. Yeah, so it's um, that, employer, that an employer can't act in a way. Um, which is likely to destroy or seriously damage um, the relationship between the employer and the employee. So it's a very wide um, duty. It can cover, you know, obvious things that you would expect, such as, you know, the employer can't harass or be abusive to the employee. Um, but it could also cover things um, like if an employee um, gives an employee, um, an employer gives too much work to an employee and then ignores the employee's requests for support. So right. that would also be a breach of the duty. And 
And often this duty is relied on by employees where um, there is a serious breach that um, employees can say, okay, well, I'm going to um, resign and claim constructive unfair dismissal um, because the behaviour of the employer has gone to the heart of the employment relationship. So that's what a number of employees rely on that duty if, if they're bringing a constructive unfair dismissal claim. Do you think that's more of a challenge now in a, in a for the balance between employees and employ, employees and employers now that we were in more sort of a remote working world? Because if you think before before smartphones, you could do your nine to five at, at, in an office and you could leave, but yeah. the workday can can really stretch um, and really impact people's lives and so on. Do you, do you, do you see that? coming up more now in cases or or, or is it, it have I just missed the point on it no not at all I think I think there is this as you said there's this blurring between personal and work life where because people are working from home or working from home more that you know it's easier you know for people to kind of carry on working later on into the evening or feeling expected to do that um and uh, you know I think that comes down to you know the culture of the um, employer and and looking at you know what the expectations are for employees and and what the best way of working is and looking to support employees you know if you are have got employees sending emails late at night for example and you know to find out why why they felt that they needed to do that you know was it really for business critical reason or was it just that they were still um, logged on because they were, you know, finding it difficult to switch off. Yeah, just just getting into the tips for anyone out there. Um, if you use Google, I don't know if Microsoft and stuff do it, but um, I always think of stuff that I want to email people at the weekend or late at night. Um, but Google has a scheduled send, and it's my favorite. Yeah. Trip. Like I had something I wanted to send Gemma. I had a people on Friday night that just came into my head. I said yeah. it now, but it was scheduled to set to send on Monday morning. It's just like a little button there. You just press it. It's so easy to do. Um, and I'm just putting in a little tip for there for anyone that's trying to really look after their employees because no matter how nice you are as a leader, if you send an employee an email um, at a ridiculous time, they're going to feel some kind of obligation to at least read it and acknowledge it. Um, so yeah. I'm just pointing out that little tip um, on that. No, um, that's a really good point. Uh, I wish WhatsApp had it as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's get into B Corps, Louise. Uh, I'm really yeah. fascinated by these at the moment. I'm looking at making the happiness index one. Um, Fantastic. Uh, yeah. I even, you know, um, you know, you can buy Cadbury's chocolate buttons. Yeah. I found a competitor to that that's made by a B Corp, and I was eating them last night. They're so nice. I can't remember the name. <laughs> Check them out. <laughs> um. I, um but the thing that fascinated me is that a B Corp is changing their article as, as, of associations, which I didn't even know that you could do. So the question yeah. is how and why are B Corps um, amending their article of associations? Yeah, so that it's a good question because, I mean, articles of associations, so they're the um, set of regulations which um, regulate the internal affairs of your company. And there's a standard, you know, set of articles in the UK. Um, and those include that when companies are um, making decisions, um, that they 
um, need to do so to promote the company for the benefit of the shareholders. So it's all about maximizing profit. Now, the whole point of being a B Corp is, well as looking at your financial returns, you've got to give us, you know, as much consideration to that as to your social environmental impact. Yeah. So that's why as a B Corp, you need to amend your articles of association to say that as well as promoting the company's success for the benefit of shareholders, um, your company's also going to have a material positive impact on society and the environment taking as a whole. So essentially, you know, when you're making decisions, the company, you know, the board of directors will have to not only think about profit maximization for its shareholders, but also what impact are the decisions going to have on society and the environment. So that's why it's really important to um, amend the articles, because I said the standard set of articles that you see is all about just shareholder, um, you know, making decisions for the benefit of shareholders. So what's the actual practical ramifications, at Louise? Let's say let's say a, um, a company becomes a B Corp, right? And it says it's supposed to be all about um, the planet. Um, but but suddenly they're just they're, they're dropping oil in all the oceans all the time for whatever. Mm. Is there a legal ramification on the directors of that company then because of the what they've written in the articles associations or is it just cosmetic? Yeah, because it, it, it is a legal, it, it is a set of rules that is legally binding. So there would be ramifications. And also, you know, ultimately the shareholders should be holding the directors to, to account to say, you know, these are the governing rules um, yeah. and but you haven't um, abided by those. So that can, you know, pose risks you know, and issues for the directors that they've been in breach of their duties. Yeah, it's a good point. So you could end up having a shareholder meeting where they where where someone says, let's vote out the CEO because look, this is what's in your articles association and this is not what you're delivering against. Yeah. Okay, that's, I mean, that is fascinating. I don't know, um, just yeah. on examples again, I don't know if you saw, but Brewdog have bought their own forest. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Unbelievable, because they're doing loads of stuff, like they've rigged up their factory in Scotland um, to like the local um, wind turbine and stuff like that. Um, but they've just bought, um, they, sorry, they haven't bought a forest, they've bought loads of acres of land and they're going to they're gonna plant trees that will double um, their, their, um, their, you know, like the amount of carbon dioxide they're using. So they're going to double their impact. So they're going to put a double the amount of oxygen in the carbon dioxide that they're using by planting this forest. Oh, right. Wow. Brilliant, isn't it? So shout yeah. out to the Brewdog crew um, on that. Um, you, Louise, you told me about something about the Mindful Business Charter. What is that? Yeah, so that's a charter that um, started as a collaboration between a couple of banks and um, their legal suppliers. And it was looking at, you know, how could they work together to reduce avoidable stress for their employees and promote um, better mental health and well-being in the workplace? So law firms and banks can sign up to the charter if they've got top level approval that from leaders that they would adhere to the charter. And it includes um, different elements. But some of the things actually one of the things you've already touched on about um, the timing of emails. So one of the key principles is, you know, respecting rest periods. Yeah. So thinking about rather than sending emails um, in the evening or at the weekend, you know, can you time them to go out during working hours? Um, or if it has to go out, you know, outside of working hours, being clear in the title whether it needs to be um, action promptly. Um, and another area it looks at is a mindful delegation. 
Um, so rather than just imposing a deadline on a team member to actually, you know, discuss with the team member the, the timescales for the project overall and negotiate a time frame for the team member doing the work. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's setting out a set of principles really to, as I said, to help um, employees and have a more um, positive um, uh, work workplace environment. Yeah, it was fascinating. I need to, I need to find out more about it. Um, the next question, Louise, I have no idea what you're going to say to this. Um, so <laughs> I'm just all ears. Do you think happiness can become a legal right? Question mark. <laughs> I, in my personal review, I don't think it can, um, because you know happiness is a subjective feeling. Um, which can be caused by a number of different factors. And, it, you know, it could also be um, transitory. And, you know, if, if you're giving a legal right, then that means others have got to be bound by it. So to make sure that that right can be complied with. And I think if we just look at, you know, having that type of legal right in the workplace, for instance, you know, there are some factors which are objective, which you think, well, clearly, you know, an employer has to um, ensure that they don't do certain things. So, for instance, you know, piling too much work on an employee um, and not helping them so that the employee becomes unhappy. I mean, that's covered by the implied um, duty of mutual trust and confidence, which we mentioned earlier anyway. But if you take another yeah. example where you've got two employees um, undertaking the same role, their employers treating them fairly and consistently one employee is really happy in their job but the other doesn't enjoy their job they're not happy you know they're just it's not perhaps it's not the right career for them they're you know doing it just to earn money so that then they can go and do something they want to do you know perhaps a different role or traveling or whatever it might be should the employer in that circumstance be bound to make that employee happy and be liable because the employee is unhappy yeah. um, and I don't think the employer should in that case so I think as I said because it's it you know it can be so personal it's so subjective it, it, you know it can be a state which doesn't last very long I think it would be difficult to um, legislate for that and you said in your lifetime does that mean you think it could change in a longer period of time? No, I don't. No, I don't no, you think so. Being, you were just being nice. <laughs> Sorry. No, the reason I, the reason I ask is because if you if people scroll back and listen to the, for example, Professor Alex Edmonds and Professor Jeremy Dawson, it's it's, it's conclusive now that um, unhappy uh, unhappiness in the workforce, for example, in the NHS, leads to higher mortality rates. Yeah. So if you don't have that information and you don't know that and you're running an NHS trust or you're running a business where, as Alex Edmonds points out, that if you don't, if unhappier employees lead to less financial performance. So mm. if you don't know that, um, you're just ignorant to that information. But if you are now aware of that information, in my opinion, you are now an, an incompetent CEO if you are not acting mm. on it. So you might not be um, acting illegally. But I, my subjective view is that you would be incompetent. Uh, yeah, that's a debate for another day. Um, so we can't make it legal. Um, 
yeah, I don't want to go full circle here, like how you described the Declaration of Independence. Um, yeah, more of a like a moral obligation. Um, mm. that, that wasn't your word, was it? What was your exact phrase for it? A moral standard. A moral standard. Yeah. Do you think we should create a happiness charter? I think that would be a good idea because I think, but I think first we need to think about, I suppose, what the definition of, you know, what you're looking at when you, we use the term happiness. Because if it's in the sense of, as I said, kind of not transitory, a state of kind of pleasure, it's more about, you know, well-being, a longer term impact in the workplace, then I think you could because there are things you could set out in a charter which are, you know, objective and simple principles that employers could follow to foster, you know, better working relationships and having a more positive working environment. Yeah. So, for instance, it could set out things like, um, you know, paying a fair wage, yeah. um, you know, as a minimum paying the London living wage, which is still um, voluntary or um, engaging and consulting with your employees on any decisions that impact on the workforce. Yeah. Um, and some of the other things we touched on earlier, you know, kind of the mindful delegation or or thinking about the timing of communications, you know, when communications are sent out um, and, you know, how you work with employees to, to put in place um, timeframes for compliance with tasks. So I think, as I said, I think it could be a good idea because you could set out a set of principles that employers um, can work towards. And I think, you know, the main thing is also is to be um, have a clear sign up process that, you know, it does need to, to really be promoted from the top um, and, you know, perhaps some kind of public signing so that employers are um, held to account on a kind of moral basis that, you know, they're showing publicly to their employees that this is the standard that they're going to um, abide by. Yeah, I love it, Louise. I'm going to mull it over. I may be back in touch saying I need some help to write this thing. Uh, <laughs> but no, Louise, I just finished by saying thank you so much. Um, this is an observation rather than based on evidence and data. But I would suggest that if all the lawyers in the world were like you, the world would be a happier place. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Louise. Have a good one. Thanks very much, Matt. Bye. Cheers, bye.